The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Discover the power within. UnityOnlineRadio.org The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome to the show today. I'm really excited about my guest and about the topic that we're going to be covering. When I got the opportunity to talk with theologian, scholar, and best-selling author, author Matthew Fox, I jumped at the opportunity. I said, this is going to be great. I have so many questions to ask. Then when everything was confirmed, I started to get nervous because I am not a theologian or anything close to that. And so I'm a little afraid of sounding ridiculous or stupid in some of the questions that I ask. And I knew the story about Matthew, that he was formerly a member of the Dominican order within the Catholic Church, but had been expelled from the church by then Pope Benedict due to his ideas, then became an Episcopal priest. So I knew that part of the story, but I never really read what those ideas were exactly that caused him to be expelled from the church. So when I got the book Essential Writings on Creation Spirituality and started reading everything, it just all made sense. The, the door was opened. And it also made sense as to why he's so revered by people like Andrew Harvey, Joanna Macy, Thomas Berry, and other scholars and spiritual teachers, and also made sense why Pope Benedict was so nervous. So Matthew has been teaching the concepts of creation spirituality since the 70s, when he started the Institute of Culture and Creation Spirituality. He's still teaching and writing today. If I went on to list all of his books and achievements and accomplishments, we'd never get to the actual conversation. So I'm just going to jump in because I'm so happy that he could spend some time with us and talk about this ideas. So thank you for joining me today, Matthew. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dan, for the invite. I'm glad you have a program like this, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, I'm really happy that we could talk about creation spirituality, and especially to the Unity crowd and all of our listeners out there, because these ideas, um, even though, like I said in the beginning, you've been talking about this since the 70s, I really feel that we really need this message, and we really need you today, now more than ever. And in my own little human existence here, you know, I've, I've really tried to believe that there's an all-encompassing force 
in the infinite universe that is loving and intelligent. But sometimes I don't think that this exists at all. Um, I'm, I don't know. I'm skeptical. My, my faith flags. And some people are so sure of their faith and their beliefs that there's no room for deviation or new ideas. And I'm sure you've come across this a lot in the past, right? People kind of stuck in their, in their own path and not wanting to hear new ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. We, I think we have a, a temptation to make God at, over into our image instead of um, probing what it means to be in the divine image. And um, I'm glad that you talk about um, the divine as uh, something very vast. And, and the question becomes, you know, is there intimacy as well? This great, the great mind of the universe, as Eric Jansch, the physicist, talks about God. Um, and I think that's what, certainly what the Christian tradition is trying to say, and, and the Jewish tradition too, um, and, and all the religious traditions in their way are trying to say that, yes, there is a, a communication between the, the divine and the, uh, and the human. But of course, science today has taught us how vast our universe is, you know, two trillion galaxies each with hundreds of billions of stars, and our star, the sun, is, it, it holds a, a, a million, a hundred million Earths, I think that's what it is. Um, it's unbelievably big, even though it's just a medium-sized star. So the point is that this is a vast universe, and are we alone in it, you know? Uh, I think for humans to survive and to be our best selves, <laughs> and not the cells that wage war and uh, and uh, build empires and try to beat up on one another and wage racism and sexism and the rest, I think to be that kind of beings, we need, um, it really helps to have a sense of conscience that's built on the idea that uh, we humans have to match the the sense of justice that is in the rest of creation that we, even in our bodies there's a balance a quest for balance and that's what justice is and um yeah so i think that the but you know divinity has so many names i, I wrote a book a couple of years ago on the 89 most i call it most uh, wonderful and useful names for god and and um bringing science in again like god is energy and god is is uh, flow and uh, God is the mind of the universe and the, and the mind of the planet, the eco mind and so forth, as well as love and justice and beauty. And um, so I think that it, we do want to open up our minds about the diversity of talking about divine things. But did you ever feel, do you ever feel the doubt that I do sometimes? Well, sure. I mean, uh, I think doubt is, is important because it's a way of staying on your toes and testing things out. So, um, I mean, that's why I write books to learn something. I don't write books because I know something. No, I write books because I'm ignorant and I want to know something. And, um, you know, Thomas Aquinas said in the 13th century that a little knowledge about important things is much more wonderful than a lot of knowledge about unimportant things. So, so I think the kind of discussion we're having is important you know what 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 is divinity 
and what is our relationship to divinity and uh, how do we um how do we connect to divinity and and is there such a thing as divinity and what does that mean and does it flow both ways that we 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 also um, teach god things as uh, as we unfold each in our unique way you know, I never knew Aquinas was such a forward thinker until I started reading a little bit more about him in your book. And there was a, a big high school in my neighborhood, St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm. And uh, I never really knew about him and his teachings, although I knew a lot of kids that went to that school. <laughs> and uh, yeah, his his ideas must have been, you know, really surprising for the time. So I, I was, I was interested to read that. Yeah, he was very controversial this time. Uh, the king of France had to call out the, his, his army at times to surround the convent where Aquinas lived because Aquinas was so controversial because he was trying to bring science into religion in the 13th century. And fundamentalists in that time, just like today, say, who needs science? We've got all the answers in the Bible. But Aquinas said, no, he said, Revelation comes in two volumes, the Bible and nature. So we have to go to those who study nature. That's what science is. So Aquinas brought Aristotle, who was the, the best scientist that the 13th century uh, knew of. He was just being translated actually by Muslims uh, in, uh, in Baghdad um, and being translated into Latin so that he could be understood in the West. So Aquinas jumped on this new scientist and, and threw out really the dualisms of Plato that had dominated Western philosophy and theology for, for a long, long time. And uh, he said, I prefer Aristotle to Plato because Aristotle does not denigrate matter. And um, he wrote 10 books on Aristotle, commentaries on Aristotle, books on physics and metaphysics and ethics and politics and logic and all this stuff. He didn't write one book on Plato or one book on Augustine, who was very much a Neoplatonist theologian. So it was, a, it was a tremendous revolution in Christianity. And the result was that right after he died, bishops, three bishops condemned him you know, on three different occasions. The Bishop of Paris, where Aquinas had taught for many years, condemned him. And the Bishop in Oxford condemned him twice. And the issue was dualism. That, uh, again, he, he liked Aristotle because Aristotle was non-dualistic. And uh, Rosemary Luther says that dualism is the basis of, of patriarchy. So we can really say that Aquinas was a proto-feminist because he was taking on dualism in a very conscious way by preferring Aristotle. Like Augustine has said, spirit is whatever is not, is not matter. That's incredibly dualistic. And it, leaves a lot out. <laughs> Aquinas said spirit is a land, the vitality in everything, in a blade of grass or a tree or a horse or ourselves. So spirit is everywhere. It's the vitality everywhere. So that was Aquinas's approach and it was a, a revolution and uh, uh, it wasn't real well received. Yeah, I could, I could imagine at that time it must have, and I don't know why those ideas would really be scary to a lot of people because I've always thought of God and, and unity teaches this too as an all encompassing, all encompassing thing within all of us. I didn't, and you introduced me in the book to some terms. So I've learned a lot from reading this, you know, theistic beliefs, 
saying that God is the creator of the universe. We're separate from it. And Satan is somewhere in the mix, you know, interfering with things and that Jesus is the savior of all of us humans. Like there's one way to think of it. And then panentheism, the belief that God or the divine intersects all of the universe and also extends everywhere beyond space and time in an infinite universe. That always seemed to make more sense to me than that separation that you're talking about, that the belief that God is separate. Isn't that at the heart of creation? says that um, God is in all things and all things are in God. And that's the mystical way of seeing the world. And that's certainly what unity is about. That's the unity is that we are in un- union with divinity and all things are. Theism says that God is out there someplace and we have to bring God in. But um, like Meister Ecker said, God is at home. It's we who've gone out for a walk. So, um, and that really is what meditation is about, isn't it? It's about returning to our deep, deepest self and that's where divinity is and one of Eckhart's names for God is the ground of being and in fact that was Thich Nhat Hanh's favorite name for God the ground of being and um, so again it's about returning to your deepest self it's not about having to chase God around around the world Um, so that is a very different way of seeing divinity but it's an ancient way even in the book of Acts where you know one of the books in the new testament um uh, i think as paul is giving a sermon he says god is the one in whom we live move and have our being but that's panentheism and then like in john's gospel uh you have uh, a lot of language about how um uh, father is in me and i am in the father and we are in you uh this language from christ that is very panentheistic too so um, uh, this is not, it's not new, uh, these ideas of panentheism, for example, but they sound new because so much of modern religion is about subject and object and about God someplace else and us here, um, God apart from the world and so forth. But no, that's not, I don't think it's accurate and that's not the mystical way, which is panentheistic. Of finding it's like the fish in the water the water's in the fish and the fish is in the water that's how i see our relationship to god and to grace i like that idea much better and you know i actually kind of got in a debate with um, a guy i was taking an uber ride from who <laughs> wanted me to you know turn my life over as as a sinner like he was trying to convert me in the car and as wow. as it was speeding down the highway i was trying to reason you know with him and say well i don't really think that i i believe god is with us all around us mm. and and he didn't he didn't like that he kept driving really fast wanting <laughs> wanting me to convert so i was kind of agree- agreeing just to get out out of the ride but the, the point being people yeah, get you. very uh irate and they really want to hammer that idea home that we are horrible sinners and that we have to repent and all that Mm. and that's one of the things you also talk about in in these writings on creation spirituality that it's not original sin it's original blessing and when i read that i thought oh wow that that makes so much sense Mm. that we're not outside of god we're not we're not horrible sinners at birth right although we do horrible things maybe later on (laughs) um 
Exactly. So, and it's not just about us. You see, the whole universe is a blessing. And blessing is the theological word for goodness. So um, this gentleman, you should have had him return to, not where he's driving, but later, to the very first page of the Bible. Because that is chapter one of Genesis, is all about the universe and how beautiful and good it is. So the, the sun is talked about, it and it's good. And the moon is good and the land and the trees and the animals are good and at the very end this is it's a creation story you see at the very end comes hum humanity and all together it says everything is very good and the the word can also be translated very beautiful and um that's how the bible begins but so many of these other people they jump in um with both feet uh on the second and third chapter which is about you know humans doing sin but um you know the jewish people wrote the bible the hebrew bible and genesis and they don't believe in original sin which is also saying that jesus didn't believe in original sin he never heard of it jews have never heard of original sin they believe in the fall but but the fall is a fall that is we make mistakes and, and like a kid learning to walk you know you fall you skin your knee, but you learn, and you get up, and gradually you learn to walk. That's what the the fall story is about. It's not about original sin. And um, there is a a wonderful Jewish uh, thinker, Ara uh, Rank, R E M K, and uh, a psychologist in the mid twentieth century. And he talks about the original wound, which I like much more. And he says our original wound is leaving the our our mother's womb to be born. It's our being born, that there's a wound because we've been so happy for nine months in this contained place. Then we come out and oh, there's all this cacophony and there's lights and there's people hitting you on your butt and um, and everything else, you know. So life is not a picnic right from the get-go. But, but the wound is that he says we were once so content. And then he says this wound we carry with us and there's only two ways to solve it. One is the unio mystica, the, the mystical union. And that comes through love and through art. So I just love that language, the original wound, that we come into a world that is wounded. You know, there's plenty of evil floating around. But that doesn't mean that we're evil. And um, it's disempowering to tell people that, that they, especially children, that they are blotches or something on on, on history for having been born. No, it's just the opposite. We, uh, Meister Eckhart said, um, he's one of the great mystics that I love in the 14th century. He said that um, when I float out of the creator, all creatures stood up and shouted and said, behold, here is God. And they were right. <laughs> so every being is an expression of divinity, including every human being. And we should um, teach our children that. And uh, while well, also instructed them that, yes, we're, as you said, we're capable of making bad choices. And our ancestors were too. And so we, we are born into a wounded world. But above all, it's a beautiful world. And it's a good world. And, um, uh, and, and the scriptures, chapter one of Genesis, utterly um, reinforces that. And we should it's a save privilege it. to be here after 13.8 billion years. It is. It is. I am. I do. I do feel privileged, in that sense. 
Something else I wanted to ask you talking about things that we, uh, you know, that we tell children. One thing that really struck me, I think I was eight or nine and my parents sent me to one of those Bible church camps. I think, you know, just to get me out of the house over the summer because it was free. Sure, we can go. So they got a bunch of us kids into an auditorium and a guy came out and he said, what would happen if God came down right now and you were left behind? And I was terrified. And I went back home and I said, don't ever send me to that, that <laughs> church camp again. I was so scared. Wow. And just that story. Um, I mean, were the, those things were kind of put in place to, to scare, you know, humanity to kind of bring us in line or well it sounds like it doesn't it, it did it was i had uh, nightmares i thought well you I know was the idea of original away. sin comes from augustine who lived in the fourth century and what else happened in the fourth century the church took over the empire the roman empire that was dying so yeah i think original sin idea has stuck around so long because it serves empires it's a very political um statement that and and it gets people in line it gets you all confused and afraid as as you were as a child and um so it 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 works for uh running empires and getting people to join up and join the army and kill people in the name of christ and all this um it has served political interests for 16 centuries and and yet jesus never heard of it so what what's going on here you know ellie weissel uh, said that not only is original sin not in our bible but is alien to jewish thinking so the whole idea introduces a doubt about our right to be here that is is foreign to um to jewish consciousness and therefore to jesus consciousness so it's a great it's a great detour that um imperial christianity took and um uh so my my teaching on original blessing i wrote a book called original blessing and this kind of blew the roof off the vatican uh not today's vatican but the vatican of two one and two popes ago and they ruled for 34 years and um so we, we even thought that the book got translated into polish this is when we had a polish pope I said, oh, good, now he'll get it. No, he didn't get it even when it was in Polish. So what I learned from all that hullabaloo was how invested a lot of institutional religion is in original sin. And um, I, I remember a Catholic sister who was a Franciscan sister was also a uh, Seneca woman, indigenous. She told me, that, <laughs> she told me one day that in her, among her people, if someone's being baptized a Christian, you know, an adult, they memorize what the priest wants to hear about original sin, and they give it back exactly as he wants it, but they don't believe it. They said, no indigenous person believes in original sin. We believe nature is holy. Nature is, is blessed. And, uh, you know, we just, that's not part of Christianity that we uh, go along with. That's so interesting that even if you look back at the historical Jesus and what you're saying scholars agree that he would have talked about and and preached at that time never said anything he never would have said anything about that about original sin I first was first awakened when I was teaching my first college classes undergraduates but there was a woman that was 42 in my class and um, she was Jewish and after one class she said to me 
what is it those those young girls because the women's college what, what are those young girls talking about original said i've never heard it i said you have Genesis and you've never heard of Virgil Sin? Never, I've never heard a rabbi talk about it. I've never heard another Jew talk about it. But those young women were going on and on. They were, they were Catholics. And, uh, and I said, well, that's, um, that's a Christian version of, uh, of the second chapter of Genesis. Well, she said. And so she woke me up. It, it was really, it took a Jew to wake me up. Then I went exploring and I realized, wow, it was, it's not just her, it's a whole tradition. So that's when I started investigating and researching and, and wrote the book. Did you read, um, have you read the whole Bible? Actually, yeah, I read the whole Bible when I was a teenager. And, and is it true that in the whole Bible that really anything attributed to what Jesus actually said is really essentially like the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes of what's attributed to what he something that he actually said, like a quote? Well, you know, there's been a, a um, gathering of uh, biblical scholars, New Testament scholars, they call themselves the Jesus Seminar uh, during my lifetime. Uh, and it's going on for a couple of decades now. And what they've tried to do is to really research how many of the expressions and teachings in the gospel are literally from Jesus' mouth and how many came later. And they concluded that about 15 to 20% of the words attributed to Jesus actually were his words, but 80% were not. But that doesn't mean that the gospel is trying to deceive us. In fact, they were so excited. And remember, I mean, when a great event happens, or even like a great dream happens, it can take years to uncover and unpack the meaning of it all. So, and, and the, the first Christians were very much in a survival mode, and the, most were fishermen and things. They were not intellectuals, and Jesus was illiterate. Most of his followers were illiterate. So it's not as that they were dashing off and taking notes or something. And Jesus died so young. I mean, he was murdered so young, assassinated that, um, and tortured, that he, he didn't have time even to leave written things behind. So it all, it was all very traumatic, I think, for the first generation of Christians to lose Jesus so suddenly. And um, so, so the point is, though, that these stories and teachings that came later, and they all came within a 70-year period. I mean, all the New Testament was written before the, around, before the year 100. Jesus died around 30. So it's a 70-year period, uh, which is a couple of generations of people, of course. So, um, but the point is that then everything in the New Testament, you know, has its own wisdom. It's not as if you have to throw out everything that didn't come from Jesus' mouth, uh, because think about it. I mean, whenever humans get together, we make up stories or we, we see a story differently. It's like those seven blind people with an elephant, you know. Everyone gets a different angle on it, which is not a bad thing. It's a neat thing. And... Um, so there's a diversity around the teachings of Jesus, but it's certainly true that the, um, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, uh, but of course the stories about compassion, I mean, the stories are there, are the oldest things, and because Jesus taught in stories. And stories are easier to remember, of course, than some kind of doctrine. Yes. Age. So um, there's a lot of richness there. 
We're going to take a short break and continue our conversation with Matthew Fox on his new book, Essential Writings on Creation Spirituality. We'll be right back. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Thanks for joining us. This is unityonlineradio.org. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Thanks for joining me after the break. I'm talking with Matthew Fox about his new book, Essential Writings on Creation Spirituality. Just so many deep and rich lessons in here, a collection of works from from years past so matthew these everything that's in this book has been curated and collected from from years ago right these are like your best of is this your best of collection (laughs) yeah but not all the years ago this is right up to to my current writing too for like over my shoulders julian of norwich and i wrote my book on julian just two years ago because uh she lived through the worst pandemic ever in the west bubonic plague and she uh, has a lot to teach us about living through pandemics. Uh, she lived in the 14th century. So um, I, I got that book out during the height of the pandemic because I felt we could use some advice from the past. We but can. this whole creation spiritual tradition, you know, it's so pertinent. And it was when I first started writing 40 years ago to today's number one issue which is of course climate change and the way we're treating the earth i mean just this week a new report came out from the united nations uh, scientists saying that we have eight years left we have to change our way as a species so um uh we have to cease our wars against mother earth and we have we we are capable of it we have to change our diets we have to grow far 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 more trees and obviously we have to do the technological creativity and inventions to um, find uh, our energy sources in renewable and safe energies. And there are all kinds of prophets like Greta Thunberg and others, especially young people today who are trying to, as I say, wake up the older people, those who are making the laws or, and of course, those who are hiding their heads in the sand, uh, like a lot of fossil fuel millionaires are doing. Um, we have to move on this and so the creation spiritual tradition notice it's about creation that means it's about nature nature creation the same word and and the idea that we center our climate change struggle around the sacredness of nature that's built into that phrase creation spirituality and this is the oldest tradition in the bible but it's much older than the bible this is a tradition of indigenous people everywhere so there's a tremendous link up here. We're all in this together, obviously. And it's not a Christian problem or a Jewish problem or an atheist problem or an indigenous problem. It's a human problem of how we relate to the earth and all its manifestations and, and to our own bodies, which are part of that. And um, 
and pass it on a healthy earth to future generations. So that's why spirituality is, is so central. And that's why if you start religion with sin, you, you're missing the whole point. That's just another act of anthropocentrism or what Pope Francis has rightly called narcissism. To begin with, because only humans sin. The trees aren't sinning. The animals aren't sinning. The moon and sun aren't sinning. So to begin with sin, which is what these right-wing fanatical fundamentalists want to do, is an ultimate act of anthropocentrism and, um, and narcissism. And that's not going to get us anywhere. And of course, to be anti-science is absurd because science has the tools not only to, to um, invent and create different ways of getting energy, and stuff, but to let us know how things are going. And things are not going well, as science is telling us. So the idea that you can separate science from religion is not only absurd, it's dangerous. And Thomas Aquinas says, a mistake about creation results in a mistake about God. So that's a tremendous affirmation of the scientist's vocation. So turn it around, an insight about creation, about nature, might give us insight about God. So why wouldn't we want to explore and work with science, not against science? Exactly. And it seems like we're going in such a different direction where there's actually people called flat earthers that, you know, are believing uh, crazy things like that. And I, and I love your, what you're saying, because it kind of reinforces what I've always thought about why there's that separation between science and spirituality, when you would think God is giving us the opportunity to have the intelligence to figure all this stuff out. And, um, yeah, you get excited and, and awe-filled about it, become more mystical. I mean, like, I'm sure you're very excited about this web telescope that's just been uh, sent into space. I certainly am. I can hardly wait. They're going to be able, that machine is going to be able to look back to the origins of our universe and see the first signs of light and so forth. I mean, we're going to learn so much more from just that one amazing instrument. And it's exactly like you say, we humans, you know, we're not all bad. <laughs> we do have these wonderful minds and hopefully our heart and our wisdom can match it. Uh, but uh, we can increase the amount of awe in our lives uh, through our inventions and not just mechanical and technological inventions, but of course, through art, through um, <clears throat> Everything from music and dance and culture and, and uh, food and ritual and all of that, that's all part of humanity's uh, better angels. And I think we should be putting more emphasis into that kind of stuff and a lot less into building war and war machines and how we Right, can more emphasis into art and music and, and creativity. And that's what you've tried to do, I'm sure, with if anyone has gone to one of your cosmic masses. And I was privileged enough to be able to attend one a few years ago at the Parliament of the World Religions. And, um, and also kind of bringing back in where you're talking about the younger generation. And you were working with um, two people, uh, Jen and Skylar, um, at that particular cosmic mass. They were a part of it with, they had these big puppets and everything. It was, it was just pretty incredible. And in light of that UN report that you just mentioned, which is pretty bleak, I was reading about that. It, that's, that's really scary too as scary as that guy telling me that I was going to be left behind. But do you think that the younger generation, people seem to write off, you know, millennials and, and younger people as not caring, but in, in your work, that's not true. Is it that there is hope, right? Even though it does seem bleak. Definitely. I mean, there has to be hope. Humans can't 
survive without hope. We, we die uh, because of despair and, and we dry up. And um, I, I like the definition of hope from David Orr, who's an eco-philosopher. He says, hope is a verb with the sleeves rolled up. So hope is proportionate to our, our willingness to work. And that work, the sleeves rolled up, for me is about inner work. That's where spirituality comes in. It's about inner work as well as work in the world, if you will. It's about developing our values. And why are we here? And what matters? Uh, look at what's happening currently in, in Ukraine. Uh, the, it, the Ukrainian people are, are standing up against the uh, effort by, by Putin to take over their country. And it's a very dangerous thing they're doing. But they're exhibiting such inner work, that is such courage and compassion for one another and so forth, that it's like Dr. King was asked one day, how can you walk through the suburbs of Chicago knowing people want to kill you? And he said, well, you have to love something more than the fear of death if you're going to live. And I think that what the Ukrainians are doing is loving something more than the fear of death. And what is it? It's democracy. They've only had a democracy for 30 years, and they believe in it. Now, here back in America, we've had a democracy for 225 years, and I think it's getting real old and real stale with a lot of real crackpots trying to tear it down and calling themselves politicians. And uh, so I think there's a real lesson for us old, tottering, so-called democracies to look at these, this fledging 30-year-old democracy and realize they're willing to die for it. The only thing Americans will die for is, is a beer. I mean, it's right. scandalous. And yet, I mean, there's such a lesson here that, and this is what I mean by inner work. Uh, and, and, you know, notice how democracy is being used in this country. It's, just used, it's being used for power by all kinds of people just want it for power. It, they don't tell us what they're going to do once they have the power. They just want the power. And um, it's, it's appalling, really. So I'm hoping that what happens in Ukraine will shed light on what can happen in America, we have to reinvent our democracy because it's obviously failing. Right. That's an interesting perspective to, you know, look at what's happening over there. And we're so horrified where we're kind of complacent here. Like you said, we've had democracy for 200 years, even though we're not really paying attention to how it's being pulled away from us little bit by little bit, rights are being chipped away. Authoritarians are rising to power. Exactly. Um, I wanted to get into a little bit of like the, the via positiva and the via negativa, just kind of as it relates to this, because the, what's happening there and, and with Putin and the rise of, of autocracy, that's definitely the dark side, right? I mean, can, can the dark exist without the light, I guess? Can there be, is there light at the end of the tunnel? Do they coexist? Is there always going to be that, that heaviness? Well, yeah, there's always going to be uh, mistakes that humans make. Uh, we're prone to mistake. And um, because we have the great minds that we do have and the great creativity we have, we're dangerous. We're dangerous to ourselves. We're dangerous to others. We're certainly dangerous to Mother Earth and all the other creatures that are dying now and going extinct because of us. Now we're facing our own extinction, and uh, that's pretty serious. But... Um, uh, Rabbi Zaman Schachner says, there's more good than evil in the world, but not by much. <laughs> so it is a struggle and you have to be on your toes. And that's what all religions have taught, that there is, you know, the, the, the Muslims talk about jihad, 
But Muhammad actually said that the jihad, that struggle, is first of all with oneself. It's not about going to war against others. You got to look at yourself. And um, um, so, yeah, evil, there is such a thing as evil. And it's, I think it's really showing its, its uh, head these days. Um, and Carl Jung predicted this. He said the age of Aquarius, evil will no longer be under the table. It'll be on top of the table. We all know what it is, but the issue will be, will we have the will to deal with it? And I think like the evil of climate change, um, I mean, you know, it's just beginning to hit. And, you know, I mean, here where I live in Northern California, we've got these wildfires now 12 months a year and other parts of the North of the West too. So uh, that's just one example of the, um, you know, how humans have ignored the rest of nature. We've just been uh, extracting from it, taking from it, raping it uh, for centuries. And now it's coming home to roost. So we have to wake up. And yet at the same time, there are, there are whole television channels <laughs> that are invested in telling people that what? No worry, no problem, hiding their heads in the sand. And a whole party that refuses to talk, political party refuses to talk about climate change or do something about it. So um, Thomas Aquinas, 13th century said, one human being can do more evil than all the other species put together. This is astounding. And this was 800 years before Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or Putin. So um, yes, humans are capable of great good, of great imagination and creativity, but also of great evil. So that's why we have to be on our toes. And that's that spiritual warrior energy because a warrior is awake and is on one's toes, you know, and, and is willing, needs to do some self-criticism and look inside and not just presume that we're all uh, on, the, on the right side. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of work for us to do. But as a species, we've done it before. We've undergone other transformations. And this is where I think good religion comes in. I think what Thich Nhat Hanh has been teaching, what the Dalai Lama is teaching, what um, Mandela taught, what Dr. King taught, what Gandhi taught, what Dorothy Day taught. I mean, there are all kinds of um, mentors we've had and of course, what Jesus taught uh, over the centuries. And they're all trying to say a couple of things to us. We're capable of compassion, like Jesus said, but you compassion, greater with compassion. Dalai Lama said, we can do, it with all, do away with all religion, but not with compassion. So we're capable of compassion, but it takes some work, some inner work, and then you have to create institutions that uh, embody it. And I do think that democracy, when it's healthy, is an effort at justice and balance. And, uh, but it has to be renewed constantly just because our forefathers did it 230 years ago doesn't mean we've got something now that's, that's fair and balanced uh, because everything evolves, including our own culture. And some people climb to the top like a Putin or others in our country and, uh, and they, they're, they're not there for good reasons. So they have to be deposed. So it's right. life is a struggle, you know. It's not all about going shopping. You know, I was going to ask you, I had heard another spiritual teacher and author describe like this time that we're living in right now as a divine chaos. Like all of this is supposed to be happening at this time. But then listening to you speak now, it seems like 
the divine chaos has always been, <laughs> you know, it, it ebbs and flows, I guess. So then really, well, this right. isn't And creation that is special. that way. You know, creation itself, you know, hasn't been just a, a streamlined 13.8 billion year thing. You know, stars are born and they die. Supernova is born and it dies, but they all resurrect because they send out their, their atoms and to, to make new generation. And that's like resurrection or something's birth. So it's a law of the universe, I think, that there's um, this uh, creation and destruction and, and, and then rebirth. So uh, is, again, it is like the, the three, the four paths. The via positiva is the joy and the delight and the wonder and the awe of existence. That's such a beautiful thing. We need to fill ourselves up with that all the time, every day. And then the via negativa is, is about silence, stillness, but it's also about grief and suffering and how things break apart. The word you use, chaos. That's part of it. But then the next path is the via creativa. So creativity comes out of that combination of, of being in love, the via positiva, and about uh, loss and letting go uh, and darkness that comes in the via negativa. But you bring them together, and then you're creating something. Um, you 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 can give birth to something new because you've undergone those deep experiences of joy on the one hand but also of of suffering and grief and then creativity doesn't stop with creativity either because our creativity can be making more nuke missiles or submarines to deliver them or tear down more rainforest i mean what we do with our creativity itself is morally ambiguous um and that's where the via transformative come in the fourth path of justice and, and healing and compassion that we bring all this energy and all this creativity, the lightness of the via positiva and the darkness and suffering of grief, bring it all into uh, the arena of, uh, of making compassion happen. And that's the divine work. Aquinas says compassion is the imitation of God and compassion is a fire that Jesus came to set on the earth. Well, as I said earlier, you find that in the East, you find that in Muhammad, in Islam, uh, you find it everywhere. That's kind of getting to the raw bottom of what we're capable of as a species. So I think of this time in history, and certainly your generation, it's, it's a tremendous moment because it's a moment where we're only going to survive if we transform deeply, if we undergo a deep transformation. So it's like a moment in evolution Humanity can move to another stage, a stage that all these great teachers were calling us to. But today it's a matter of, of literally life and death, of extinction, or of going on and going on in a more sane and balanced. And, and I want to talk about gender balanced way. I think that war is about patriarchy that's out of control. It's about the reptilian brain unleashed, whereas sanity is about the healthy um, consciousness of the divine feminine and the mother in us all, and uh, balanced with a healthy masculine, not a, a hyper Putin kind of masculine riding around on a, on a horse bare-chested because he took steroids. Uh, and I think it's those steroids that make him crazy today. Yes. It's, I think that's part of what's going on here. But this whole idea that we're here to beat each other, that's pure reptilian brain energy. And the mammal brain is the brain of compassion and of kinship. And that's the brain that needs to rise, but the reptilian brain has to, you know, chill out to allow room for the mammal brain. And, and um, we've, we've allowed that to take over, though, haven't we? Just by our complacency, where we've ignored the, the divine feminine, that energy. 
exactly at our own peril. That's right. Patriarchy has has banished wisdom for the sake of knowledge. And uh, wisdom is feminine, you see. And uh, <clears throat> we need wisdom, not just knowledge. We have too many knowledge factories that we call schools. And we need wisdom schools today. And uh, I mean, look at some of these graduates of law schools today that are going around, uh, you know, unbelievable, you know, making up, wanting to make up laws about, about uh, destroying elections in America, letting only certain people vote. But where'd they get that idea? And yet we have legislatures all over the place making laws and with lawyers backing them. I thought lawyers were somehow committed to justice, but no, I guess not. Not, not so much. I mean, they're using laws as weapons to keep people, you know, certain people in line that they're afraid of. They're afraid of, you know, trans people that, that want their rights, you know, gay people that want to be treated like everybody else. Right. People and, of color. Yeah. People of color, you know, and weaponizing those laws, keeping those people from voting, creating yeah. stupid laws like you can't use a certain bathroom. Why, why are we even wasting our time on things like that when we have such bigger problems that we have to worry about? Exactly. That you touch on a, a lot in the book. And I was just, I was so interested to read the things about the mystics like Hildegard of Bingen and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. And I, I just have to mention something that, that he talked about. Because there, there's a part in the book where you go uh, to talking about science and spirituality and the conversations that you had with Rupert Sheldrake that were really interesting. I have to get that book. I really uh -huh. want to read this. Where Thomas Aquinas says that angels are announcers of divine silence. So the way to contact them would be through silence, which would be through meditation. But I thought he's even acknowledging the, the fact that there could be angels that exist and i thought wow that that's really amazing and even rupert sheldrake commented on that so so think things can intertwine i mean what do you what do you think about that are there are there well, angels I, I guess tell me that's true <laughs> i i wouldn't have written a book on angels with i wanted to know. If i didn't if i didn't experience angels i don't talk about believing them i talk about experiencing them i've met a lot of people who have experienced angels um and especially after my book came out, people came out of the closet. Uh, a um, a uh, engineer, a well-known engineer, famous engineer, came up to me and said he and his wife had had visitations from angels for several years, and he wanted to talk to me about this. He said I couldn't find anyone to talk to about it. I, I was once uh, speaking to a group of uh, Episcopal clergy, actually several hundred, and I said, "Now shut your eyes, because this is not a." you know, a contest, but how many of you have experienced angels? And uh, about 85% raised their hand. And I said, how many of you have friends or others uh, who you trust, who aren't crazy, who have experienced angels? And about 75 or 80% raised their hands. So people experience angels, but our culture is so materialistic. It's so stuck in scientific materialism which is passe, it's modern science, not postmodern science, but people are stuck there, that uh, they think angels are, um, you know, all fiction or something. But actually, again, all human tribes talk about angels, about spirits, that indigenous people call them spirits. And um, uh, you do experience spirits. I've experienced them in sweat budgets. I've experienced them in cosmic masses. Um, and... Um, 
on other occasions. And I think we experience them in our dreams, that they come to us in our dreams. And of course, they come to us when we're in our creative work, because uh, they, they learn by intuition, not by reading books. And um, intuitions at the heart of creativity. So we have a whole word for that, the word muse. The word muse from the Greeks is, and of course we get the word music and museum and all these wonderful things from that word. Um, it is about a visitation uh, from spirits uh, while you're in the act of creating. And so I think that's a, a big part of creativity is calling on the spirits, calling on the music, calling on the angels. And um, we need all the help we can get today there's a wonderful um, woman, Lorna Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E. You can go to her webpage. She's a peasant woman from Ireland. She's actually illiterate. And, um, but she was experiencing angels from the time she was two years old. And all her life long, she experienced angels. And uh, I interviewed her at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And um, it was a wonderful exchange. And like 1,300 people came because they had read her books. Now, she's illiterate, but she dictated her books only when the angels told her she could, and that was in her 60s. It was after her husband had died. And um, it was just really interesting. She said there are a lot of unemployed angels in the world today. And I said, unemployed angels? My God, I said, I'm worried about the unemployed people. Well, she said, what I mean is this, that God knows that humans are in trouble today. So God is sending lots of angels to help humans, but angels aren't, but humans aren't asking them for help. So a lot of angels around waiting to be asked. So it's not a big deal to ask an angel to help. Um, you can just go ahead and ask them. They're, they're very bright and uh, intuitive too. So, and also you can um, ask them before you go to bed at night for a dream because angels come to us in our dreams very often. Well, I'm going to get quiet and, and start communing with them and hopefully be able to get some messages. And I love that you talk about dreams. You, you mentioned a transcendent dream that you had that really affected your life about Meister Eckhart. And I think a lot of times we discount dreams as just something our brains do to filter out whatever we, you know, experienced in the day, but we really should pay attention to our dreams, shouldn't we? Oh, definitely. And of course, if you look at the Bible, all kinds of events in the Bible were triggered by important dreams, uh, like uh, Joseph, Mary's husband. Uh, he had this dream to, you know, take the baby away and, and his wife to protect them from Herod and all that. And um, but all kinds of uh, initiations, if you will, in, in Bible are, are built around dreams. And of course, indigenous people, dreams are just taken for granted. First thing you're supposed to do when you get together for breakfast is talk about the dreams you had that night. It's been so wonderful to talk with you. I, I mean, I have more questions, but I know you don't have all day. So mm -hmm. I want to drive people to get your book. Uh, this new one is really, uh, I'll say it's the, it's the best of, because there's so many wonderful things you've written, Essential Writings on Creation Spirituality. And you're, you continue to write and teach, and, and people can find out what you're doing on your website. Is that right? That's true, MatthewFox.org. And then I have Daily Meditations with Matthew Fox. That's free. And, um, and we have a good time there. And there's a chance to comment. And there's interaction between people and so forth, too. But uh, I offer that every morning. Well, I'm going to check that out. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Diane. Enjoy it. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.